Good morning. It's Monday morning. Sadly, the PA didn't work at church yesterday, so we're re-recording John 1, verse 5 to 9. Um, we won't be able to recreate the pheasant hitting the window, but there we go. So this morning in the Steel household, Sunday morning, we open number 9 on our Advent calendar this morning. Four little chocolates for four little children. And I think that means Christmas Day is in about 16 days' time. Uh, how does that sound to you? What sort of emotions does it provoke? As uh, as Ruth so beautifully alluded to in the prayers, we almost have a funny kind of love-hate relationship with Christmas. We Don't get me wrong, on the one hand it is very, very exciting. We have advent calendars and trees and lights and M&S adverts and Peter Comont cooking Christmas lunch for everybody and families are going to travel miles to get together. There are presents and... Television and double thickness radio times and Doctor Who and Downton Abbey and, and maybe a chance even to slow down a, a bit. And the kids love it. And yet for fear of sounding a little too much like the Grinch, it can be a more painful time of year too, can't it? Initially because everyone's exhausted from getting ready, running around doing this and that. and Everyone feels poor from buying presents you can't really afford and... And then the batteries run out, and the tree needles get everywhere. And what can you do with leftovers that are original and tasty? And and then there are the arguments over what you watch on TV, and, and why that brother of yours never helps with the washing up. And and then more seriously, the, the peak in suicides and depression in the new year, because people realise that the new start that they hoped for and longed for never actually came, and things were just the same. Or the fact that Christmas is just a reminder of that person who's not there anymore, and all you really want for Christmas is them. Slightly ironically, we can end up feeling just a little bit more dark. And you see, the world is dark. We thought about that last week as we looked at our first few verses in John. We saw our first parents shaking their little fists at God and saying they'd prefer to go in alone. They didn't want him involved. And so they were excluded from God's presence, from from life. And people were at war with each other. And the world grew dark. And the lights and the presents and the fat man in the red suit at Christmas can be an escape from that darkness, but it turns out it's it's just a distraction. It's just momentary. Listen to this um, from a few years ago. It was a redoing of the 12 days of Christmas. Went like this. On the 12th day of Christmas, my true love sent to me 12 soldiers serving, 11 lottery losers, 10 hoodies following, 9 single mothers, 8 AIDS victims, 7 shoppers struggling, 6 carers caring, 5 repossessings, 4 calling con men, 3 starving children, 2 addicts shaking and a poor homeless refugee. And there's the warmth and the joy and the excitement at Christmas in here, but but the reality out there is still there. And the Bible is a real book. It doesn't sanitise or gloss over or downplay the darkness of our world. As As you track the story on from Adam and Eve, you see it again and again and again. The outworking of that rebellion. We'll just give you one example. We'll be looking at it tonight. It's um, Isaiah 9. It's a great time-honoured Christmas passage. And 
And rather like in the garden at the beginning, God's people have turned their backs on him. They've stopped listening to him. And so in comes the darkness. Darkness of sin and ignorance, but darkness too of judgment. Have a listen from the end of chapter 8, actually, in Isaiah, verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who, who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And when they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. And they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And as we said last week, how do you get rid of darkness? You switch on the light. You wait for the dawn. Which is why when John says the light shines in the darkness, well, well then we can have real cause for hope. Because here is the one that Isaiah longed for. Who is the one actually who comes from outside the system of darkness? So our first point for this morning then. The universal mission of Jesus the light. You see, even though we have walked out on God, he has not walked out on us. The word who was there at the beginning, with whom God was always in relationship, he, he takes on flesh and he becomes a man and he has a name and a face and God doesn't tell us what we need to do to sort things out but he comes down into the darkness and he does it in him in Jesus was life and that life was the light of or for all mankind the light shines in the darkness you see, into our broken world, into the darkness comes light. It's the light of revelation. As we understand who God is, he speaks to us and tells us how we can be in relationship with him, how we can be truly enlightened. But the light too of righteousness, righteousness that deals and does away with sin and darkness, I say to you, if you're not a Christian, or you're a brand new Christian, or you're simply not sure, then the claim of John is this, and you must grasp this. It is only Jesus that can bring the light that you need. Nothing else will do. Only in Jesus do we find the true light that will deal with our, our own personal darkness, but also ultimately the darkness of the world that we live in. And yet, of course, you see, we look elsewhere, and like moths, our hearts flutter after different things. We go for a better job, or more money, or a better home, or a 
a spouse or a better spouse or better friends or more friends or or, or a haircut even or, or, or even Christmas what is it on your Christmas list that you're banking on and hoping that will bring light into your darkness it will bring you joy and life and hope while John says there's only Jesus only he can deal with it only he is the true light nothing else will do it's fascinating even even church won't do the job listen to um, an interview with the Irish comedian uh, Ardal O'Hanlon who was in Father Ted he said this he said in time honoured fashion I reacted against religion rebelled would be too strong a word but the church provided me with a strong moral framework and it's been wonderful at making at marking the key occasions in my life the uh, the baptism of my children our wedding any funeral I've been to the church performs rituals like no other organisation we should recognise the good that it does but belief in God though now that's another thing that's a terrifying question a question that leaves you very lonely and confused and small and in the dark. Religion and ritual don't help. Very sadly they've left him with no knowledge of the God who made him. And I think it as we all do, he needs to hear of Jesus, the true light. So, John says, the light shines in the darkness. But then, slightly enigmatically, he continues, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we say, well, what does that mean? Well, as you read through John, which is something of a, of a literary masterpiece, the text is peppered throughout with light and darkness, illustrating good and evil. It's, it's a favourite picture that John uses. I'd thoroughly recommend you read all of John if you haven't. So have a listen into 3 verse 19. Um, uh, John says this, he says, This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. And we're thinking, well, that sounds like conflict, the dark world not loving the light. Thinking, well, candles, that they're beautiful, but they can be hit by a gust of wind and go out, or, or bulbs that make us, or that give us the opportunity to see in a room, they can blow. Is, is this light that John is writing about, is it going to keep shining? Will the darkness that hates the light ultimately win? But John's saying to us, be, be very clear on this. We, we do live in a world where there are such things as good and evil. But, but be assured, because in God's world they are not equal players. This is not some dualistic Star Wars script where the forces are so evenly balanced and the scale so easily tips that your heart's in your mouth and you're not quite sure how it's going to end. No, no says John. No, the darkness has not overcome it. In fact, the commentators say that Something in the Greek points to a particular occasion that, uh, that John might have in mind. And as you read the Gospel, John certainly focuses his story in on the cross where Jesus was betrayed and 
ridiculed and tortured and crucified. It was the ultimate day of darkness. But a darkness that's followed by a new dawn. A, a new light. He dies on the Friday but is raised again on the Sunday. No, no, don't worry, says John. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. One of the dangers for many at Christmas is that we simply keep that baby in the manger. For some, he's always the cute little chap in a stable who doesn't cry, and he's safe and at arm's length. Doesn't really matter to my life. But as the carol goes, light and life to all he brings, arisen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. You see, into the darkness comes Jesus, the one who's not overcome at the cross. He is the light who brings life and then John does something amazing he gets out his calendar and he shows us when this light of the world came when he he walked onto the stage of human history you see he wasn't just a theory or an idea or a philosophy or a way of thinking This word who was there from the beginning while he came to earth when John the Baptist was around. So second point then, the unique ministry of John the Baptist. You see, at at a particular time you could plot it on a calendar. In a particular place you could look on your map and, and there would be Jesus. There would be the eternal word made flesh. So verse 6, John was sent by God, just as the Old Testament prophets were. And in fact, just like those prophets of old, he was sent with a specific purpose, a specific job description. Which was, do you see it? He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. And the word for witness and testimony has legal overtones. The kind of words that you might hear in in a courtroom. A place of law. Like last week in our first Tuesday prayer meeting, one of the things that we prayed for was, uh, from the Oxford Mail, we prayed for justice. We looked at a section considering local court cases from the previous week called Scales of Justice. And so imagine you're in court, one of those cases, and essentially what happens is each side presents its case before the judge. And to do that, they present the testimony of witnesses. They present people who have seen and heard a specific event. And you know, that's rather like what we find in John. It's as if he's a barrister presenting his case by stacking up the evidence for us from from many witnesses. He himself was there as an eyewitness. He was so persuaded by who Jesus was, it, it actually turned John's life around. So he would love to convince us too that we might have this life. And so throughout the Gospel he says, look at this evidence, listen to these words. And John the Baptist is just the first of many witnesses that John the Gospel writer will stack up for us. If you're here and you're perhaps looking in on Christian things, thank you for a cup of tea, Kate. 
and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to encourage you to take one for yourself. That is our gift to you. Please take it, please read it, please look at the evidence for yourself. See, the Christian faith isn't about blind faith any more than the convictions made in Oxford Crown Court last week were about a judge flipping a coin to decide the result. No, no, John will stack up one expert witness after another, after another, after another. So the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, the, the Old Testament in chapter 5, the Holy Spirit and the Apostles and in chapter 15, he's, he's longing that we would listen and consider the facts. And so the first witness that John the Gospel writer calls to the bar is John the Baptist. If you like, he's the preview witness, the one who will announce the coming of the light. The one who later in the chapter will point straight at Jesus and declare, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's for a very specific purpose that John the Baptist announces the light's coming. Do you, do you notice in verse 7? He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. But that was the purpose of John's testimony. Not to say it was always the result. We've already seen that darkness does not like light. But it was always the purpose. In one sense, John had something of a crucial job. He was the final prophet before the one that they had all been pointing to turned up. He was the last of his kind. And it is striking because John the Gospel writer is very, very keen for us to latch on to the fact that John the Baptist in verse 8 was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Of course, John the Baptist knew that. He had a great grasp of his role in the scheme of things, where he fits into it all, which means his ministry was marked by humility. Is consistently deflecting attention away from himself and onto Jesus. So flip down a bit further uh, on the page with me, verse 19 and 20. Uh, time has ticked on, the word has spread, John is surrounded by a crowd, his flavour of the month, they were clearly impressed by what he was saying. And so the crowds ask him, who are you? His reply in verse 20, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the king that you're waiting for. Or again, later in John's Gospel, chapter 3, John the Baptist says these words. He says, he must become greater, I must become less. John is famous himself. He is a witness to Jesus, to the light. But then as the main event comes onto the stage, so John slips into the shadows. He's done his job now. The best man steps aside because here comes the groom. John, you see, had a, had a unique ministry for a specific time in salvation history. But do you know that there's a big sense in which what John did, we do. Not just some kind of a interesting history lesson about a man who lived 2,000 years ago around about the time of Jesus. No, John is our model. Like him, we also testify to who Jesus is. Like him, we, we point people away from ourselves and onto him 
the light. That's why we have lots of events at Christmas here where you can bring your friends and your colleagues and your neighbours and your family and say, come, come and hear about Jesus. Come and hear about the light. That you be brave and inviting folk. You see, just as John would point and proclaim and say, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, well, so do we. Just as John would say, he must become greater and I must become less. So do we. Or, or at least, at least that's the theory. Because no doubt you'll know your heart as well as I know mine. And personally, how easily pride comes. And we end up wanting the glory for ourselves. And rather than pointing to him, we end up pointing to us. And life and church and... Everything becomes about me and what I want and wanting people to notice me and to serve me and we compare and contrast ourselves with everyone else which just makes us feel insecure. And yet we should just be pointing people to the light. It's about him, it's not about us. I read yesterday on the um, the blog of a friend on the computer, they said this, it's very relevant, they said it's very easy for my Christian life to revolve around God helping me to fulfil my ambitions and comforting me if I don't succeed. But the problem is, that puts me and my desires at the centre of my universe. And I don't belong there. It's about him, it's not about us. Or it can even be a corporate thing. We want people to notice... Magdalen Road Church or, or any other church that we're involved in for them to think that we're a good church a loving church a friendly church a relevant church which are all fine as long as that's because ultimately we want to see how brilliant this life of the world is it's not about Magdalen Road Church it's about Jesus he must become greater and we must become less he himself was not the light He came only as a witness to the light. The um, famous and successful Christian missionary, Corrie ten Boom, was once asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble. She replied, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? If I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honour. That's the mentality that we need. Having been here for, for 18 months or so, and I look around, I have to say it's humbling, I see many John the Baptist types at Magdalen Road. People who know that this world is dark. People who are convinced that Jesus is the light, and so they just quietly get on with it. They point people to Jesus without a big song and a dance praying for their friends taking the opportunities that God provides inviting them to things chatting to them pointing them to the light it would be amazing to be a church full of John the Baptists reaching all sections of society and together saying come and see the light of the world come and find light To be finished, let me read to you from Isaiah 60, 
As Ira's there again, he's on tiptoe, then he's breathless as he looks ahead, with binoculars pressed against his face, looking ahead to when Jesus returns again, when sinful bodies are done away with, to when all the darkness is gone and God makes everything new. He says this, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Let's pray.